KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, we're taking a look back at some of the best of Flashpoint. And since Nike made headlines... After pulling its Air Max 1s featuring the Betsy Ross era flag with 13 stars and stripes, it reminded me of our April 28th show where singer Kate Smith got muted. Remember that? It was so abrupt. It was Gilbertine Swift. Smith was linked to racist musical satire, but was stopping her music and taking down her statue too much. Then he was shot and left for dead outside of his North Philly house. But instead of retaliating against his robbers... I want them to know that I'm not looking for them. One man's journey to transform trauma into forgiveness. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. This week, we're taking a look back at some of the best of Flashpoint. So when Nike sparked controversy after pulling from rotation its Max Air 1s featuring the Betsy Rocks flag, arguing that some say the 13-star flag is a symbol of racism, well, in my mind, it reminded me of the debate that ignited over Kate Smith. Remember her? Most known for her rendition of God Bless America, her song was pulled and statue removed after it was discovered that she sang racist satire. Take a listen to that riveting debate. With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Chad Dion Lassiter. He's a race relations expert who's also the executive director of the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission. We also have Lou Scheinfeld. He's the former vice president of the Flyers. Finally, we have Jennifer Flieger. She's an associate professor of media and communication studies at Ursinus College. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having us. Lou, I want to start with you. You actually played the Kate Smith rendition of God Bless America at a Flyers game. First person to do it. Became a good luck charm. Now she's been removed. Your reaction? It's been quite a week. December 11th, 1969, I decided to play God Bless America because I found that at Flyers games, people weren't paying much attention to the national anthem. They were sitting, talking, eating, even those days smoking in their seat. And I thought, maybe I'll play another song and shake them up. Well, I played it that day. And then by some miracle, the Flyers beat the Toronto Maple Leafs. They scored, they hit, they won. It was so exciting. People said, why don't you play it again? So over the years, it became quite a good luck charm. Now she's gone. The song is gone. The statue's gone. Uh, the Yankees have dismissed her. The Flyers have abruptly uh, removed her. My feeling is I think there could have been a little more civil discourse before all that happened, but that's where we are today. Chad, a lot of people, when they found out about this history from years, decades and decades ago, they were offended. Explain what exactly offended people. And I got to ask you, did the Flyers make the right decision? I think the historical aspect is that some of the things that we're learning from that period of time are now finding themselves in in, our, in the place that we're in now. So not only just God Bless America with, with Kate Smith, but also she uh, wrote and sang the song, That's Why Darkies Were Born, and Pick a Nanny Heaven. And so I think it was very offensive, uh, given the context of what we've come to find out. Um, I'm not so certain if that's the feelings that she, you know, felt at that time. Um, there are some reports that a lot of her family members said that she was a yeah, unifier. Yeah, 
that she didn't have a prejudiced bone in her body. And so I'm not here to talk about that. But I'm here to simply say that we know that some of the signs and symbols in our democracy have been challenging for a lot of people, even our white allies. And so the removal of the statue, the Phillies will still survive. They'll still win some games. The but Flyers, it was The, the yeah. Flyers, excuse me, will still survive. And so will the, the New York Yankees. But it was the right decision to, to make. She didn't write those songs. She just she recorded didn't. them. And it was among 3,000 songs she recorded. And we were asked when this came up in the past week, didn't the Flyers ever look into all her songs? I said she recorded 3,000 songs. We really had no knowledge of it. And so, Jennifer... I mean, jumping in, you've written about Kate Smith. She did a lot of great things in addition to these songs that when we read the lyrics, clearly there's racist lyrics there. Absolutely. But it's important to remember that the history of American popular music is itself full of racist songs and racist lyrics. You would be hard-pressed to find a white singer in the beginning of the 20th century who did not perform racist songs. For example, American popular entertainment in the 19th century was rooted in a concept of minstrelsy in which people dressed up in blackface like African-Americans and mocked them with stereotypical roles. This then develops into American folk music. Um, For example, Oh Susanna and I've Been Working on the Railroad both have racist verses in them. Um, American popular music and the American songbook is full of composers and singers who wrote racist songs. In fact, Irving Berlin, the composer of God Bless America, wrote a song called Nighttime in Dixieland, which has some of the same terms that are in the songs that Kate Smith sings. So... I don't think it's useful to condemn Kate Smith in particular. I think it's a great opportunity for us to look at the history of American popular song and think about why it's so full of these kind of characterizations. Yeah, and I would say that I don't think anyone's condemning Kate Smith, but when you talk about that period of time, you also had D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. Fast forward to the contemporary time, that's pretty much the psyche of some white police officers where they don't see the humanity of black and brown people. They render them um, from an oppressive state, marginalized state, render them non-person, non-entity. The catalog speaks to 3,000 songs, but the two that we know are very, very polarizing along racial lines, and that becomes offensive in in our democracy. And I got to read the part of the flyer state And Lou, I want to address this question to you. They issued a statement. They said, in part, we cannot stand idle while material from another era gets in the way of who we are today. Have the flyers changed in some way? Was there any issue that they felt like keeping the Kate Smith song in place, keeping her statue in place would somehow be a bad reflection of who they are today versus in 1969 when the song first got played? Well, first of all, I think it's really unfair that the flyers are in the the crosshairs. Ours had nothing to do with the decision. It was made by the corporate people above them, uh, the CFOs and the account, the uh, lawyers who now run the organization. And uh, they are PC. Comcast is PC. and Politically correct, y'all. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have – they really didn't have much choice. But to yank her song hours after the Yankees did and then cover the statue, that was grotesque in black tarp and, and rope. Uh, come on. Once they covered it, they had to remove it. So now it's gone, and everybody keeps saying, where is it? Why don't they give it to somebody? Why don't they sell it for charity? That statue is where Joe Paterno's statue is. It's not going to be seen for a long time. And I, and I will say that she was one of the few women who had a statue in Philadelphia. She was also a fat woman, which is important to remember. And thinking about the role models that women and girls mm-hmm. have for female icons, Kate Smith is a woman who wasn't thin, who was able to do all kinds of things in her career. She was a radio host in 1931, before it was possible for a lot of people to listen to women's voices and think of them as trustworthy. But I I don't want us to have so much empathy and sympathy for Kate uh, vis-a-vis, you know, people who have experienced, 
you know, the signs and symbols like the Confederate flag, uh, the Rizzo statue here in Philadelphia, multiple other signs and symbols that sometimes become very polarizing and they traumatize people. And then sometimes people suffer a vicarious traumatization because of the trauma that has gone unacknowledged and unchecked in our democracy. And I, and I had to ask this question and I want you guys to weigh in because just this week, a Detroit Red Wings player had to hire security, black player, because of racial slurs that he experiences during games. It's sort of like dealing with this issue in such a robust manner this way, sending a signal to people who may treat folks in this way after learning of this Absolutely. History. I think in that case, they made the right decision because there's zero tolerance. The, the only good thing that's come out of this is that we can talk about it. Yeah. And the fact that those words and those songs are repulsive. They were repulsive then. Someone had to pick the cotton. Someone had to plant the corn. Someone had to slave and, and be able to sing. That's why darkies were born. No matter what era we're in, the humanity of black people at that time and the humanity of black people this time always seems to be non-person, non-entity, not by some white, I mean all whites, but some whites. And so these signs and symbols are deeply rooted in white privilege to me. Rewind this back to 19, the 1930s when these songs were recorded. Kate Smith was born in 1907. She was in her 20s. It, was it kind of like everybody was doing it? It's true that in 1914, since you brought up Birth of the Nation, there were plenty of people in 1914 who recognized that Birth of a Nation was a racist film and protested mm-hmm. it. So it's not like no yeah. one in 1930 had any idea that mm-hmm. these songs had racist lyrics. To show you the tone of those days, uh, yeah, the tone, it was yeah. considered satire, the one song, against white supremacy. In fact, Paul Robeson. Uh, the great African-American singer. Civil rights leader, Recorded yeah. it as well. My feeling is what was then is not today. And to take something and wipe it from, literally wipe it off the face of the earth, uh, I think that's wrong. Well, I don't think, Lou, that you wipe it off the face of the earth because we know that it still exists. We still know how powerful that song was. We're having this teachable moment. It's similar to Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn when there was an argument to remove the N-word. No, the N-word and, and Huckleberry Finn needed to stay in there simply because that was the historical context of that time. The statue, though, we're talking about signs and symbols. So we don't escape any of the work that Kate Smith did. But the sign and the symbols are something that I think are are becoming an argument that people are just saying, let's have a conversation about it. Like when you look at Frank Rizzo's statue, you can ask an equal number of African-Americans who did not see Frank Rizzo. But Frank Rizzo's statue was not ripped out and and in the middle of the night or whatever and taken down. It's still there because Mayor Kenny dug in his heels and said, let's study it. Let's Maybe find a better place to put it. So you're talking Meanwhile, about the process, there. and maybe the process of what the flyers, um, how they went about doing this, may could have been and, a and, part of a and, conversation. And, and, and Jen, Jennifer, you want to jump in here? Yeah, I think you have to think of the context of each individual statue that we're yeah. talking about, because mm-hmm. the Kate Smith statue is not similar to statues um, erected for Civil War heroes from the South. Mm-hmm. It, she's not been put up for the same reason. She doesn't have the same cultural value. It's it's true. It may be that if people become traumatized by seeing her statue, then absolutely we should rethink its value. But it's not fair to equate all such statues. Yeah. And I'm a and, little and I, more emotional about it because I knew Kate Smith. Yeah. I brought her to Philadelphia four mm-hmm. times to sing before a Flyers game. The crowds were just going crazy. No one had any idea of, of, of uh, this hint of the background. And she came to the Flyers parades. And she she was re- actually reborn by the Flyers because by the, and when I brought her in, most people thought she was gone passed away because her career had pretty much uh, ended. So she was reborn. She raised over $600 million for for World War II with Mm -hmm. war bonds. It's important to notice that if you look at her catalog, you will find more such songs. On the radio, on one of her programs, she sang a song called Dr. Lawyer Indian Chief. This song has a, a rather unfortunate reference to a tomahawk in it. 
So it's yeah. not it's not useful to dissect the lyrics of these two songs and pretend that these were two key instances in her career. It's true that many, many, many popular singers were singing such songs and recycling such songs. They and weren't her songs. Kate Smith's family came out against the Flyers. They were appalled. Do you think it's the way that the Flyers did it that may have hurt the family? I mean, she was the good luck charm. And then all of a sudden, within two days, boom, bam, bam, she's gone. Wipe her from face. Sorry, 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 Kate. Right. Well, plus she was an American hero, a patriot. And and added to the Flyers' uh, aura, they could have given it a little more thought. You know, 24 hours maybe, 36 hours. But it was so abrupt. It was guillotine swift. Yeah, and I think the rush to judgment that we see in this era, instead of lending Paul's— Cancel be, culture. Yeah, yeah, lending Paul's and just maybe, you know, realizing that hey, maybe there's another way that we can do this. But I still think that the removal of the statue does not erase the things that she contributed to the democracy. If you think about it, where is the line then? If everybody was doing this and every singer, most of the singers from that period, a lot of the films from that period, can we banish everything? Where's the line? And you, and I want y'all to weigh in on that. I don't think we should banish everything, but that doesn't mean that the statue should stay. I think we have to think about these things in a case-by-case basis. My concern is that if people see folks as reactionary, as ban- as the idea that what we're doing is banishing everything, then we won't be able to have a reasoned conversation about issues that really matter. You know, was she just a scapegoat here? Because the Rizzo statue is still up. The Redskins are still called the Redskins. And there are buildings and statues named after people who probably (coughs) did far, far worse than sing a couple, a few songs with racist lyrics. Well, Kate Smith's a woman and it's easy. And also the, the kind of taking away her body from the public image echoes a lot of the treatment of her body by the press. She was routinely mocked for her weight. After her death, the New York Times obituary of Kate Smith mentioned her mastectomy and her, the amputation of her leg before it mentioned any of her career achievements. Part of the disturbance for me in the removal of the statue has to do with the, the public discussion of her body over time. Since we're basically banishing Kate Smith for a handful of songs that were racist— Shouldn't we be banning the man who wrote God Bless America and ban the songs? As all the, he wrote tons of racist songs. It's well, what about the, all the early presidents who had slaves? I First mean, 15. Washington, Jefferson, you name them. What do we do about all the statues and the cities named after them? And that's, and that's what, you know, Chad, I'm going to press you on this because Kate seems like she's getting B-slapped for this. Should we B-slap more people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't <laughs> Yeah, we won't slap them, but I think they're, they're, they're I, I get your point. I think there needs to be a, a, a true critique, because if you look at the, th- the fact that the mere fact that the first 15 presidents of the United States of America owned slaves, we need to look at those things. We need to look at Woodrow Wilson in context and the school that's named after him. Um, down at uh, Princeton University. Uh, I know that Brown University and some of the Ivies have begun to do real in-depth studies on the impact that slavery had had on building those universities. So yeah. I think we need to look at those things. But beyond the statues, we also need to look at the policies that still are in place with people who still have that mindset. Yeah. Because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. Race is an issue in America, and many believe that now is the time for this country to deal with its past, to finally confront racism and white supremacy. So... Is Kate Smith simply a rightful casualty of this war against racism? Collateral damage. That's what she is. And the Flyers are caught in the crosshairs of a controversy they didn't deserve or didn't expect. I think she's an opportunity for us to have a broader conversation that it's about time we have about American culture. I end by simply saying it's been a teachable moment for me. I think that I've learned more about what she contributed to the democracy. Nevertheless, it's a decision that they've made, and we should still continue to have the conversation. 
Thank you to Chad Dion Lassiter. Thank you to Lou Scheinfeld. And thank you to Jennifer Flieger for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Next up, he got shot, but instead of seeking revenge, he's giving forgiveness. I want them to know that I'm not looking for them. We'll be right back. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from tuning up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets our listeners hot under the collar is gun violence and the retaliation that many times follows. But one man, he's been making headlines after he was shot in the back last November and left to die on the street. Luis Berrios has buried the need for revenge and instead... He is spreading a message of forgiveness. Luis, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much. We're in your house. We came to you in North Philadelphia. First, how are you doing? I'm healing a lot better than what I was maybe a month ago. So I'm just trying to heal, move forward. And I know you're trying to move forward. And I know telling the story of what happened last November has to be tough. But please take us to that day so we can then take you to today this all started on the 11th of november um it was the eagles game uh dallas versus eagles uh this this would have been my first this was my first football game uh friend of friend of mine and i uh went to a tailgating party went to the eagles game it was a late game and on our way back home you know we caught the train uh we walked from the train to my house and while i was at my door i had the key in my door at my door two men uh, were standing behind me they just appeared from i don't know from nowhere and wanted to rob me they told me that you know what this is and as i turned around they shot me in my back wow and so you were left on the street how did someone discover you when i was shot i kind of stumbled to the middle of the street but in that process of me trying to walk to the, middle of the street i called 911 so I took my phone out. It's super crazy because I think about it now of like how calm I was. And I was calm because I wanted them to hear me. I, you know, I didn't want them to talk. So when I called 911, I said, my name is Louis Barrios. I'm at 4012 North 13th Street. And I've been shot in my back in attempted robbery. And I said, please send somebody. I don't want to die. And then I put the phone against my chest. And at that time, my knees were touching the ground. And I just was falling over. I felt myself passing out. Yeah, and he Mm -hmm. woke up and you were in the hospital. So, yeah, right before I I passed out, I I did. I I, I told, you know, I said, God, I don't want to die. Please don't let me die. And when my head, as soon as my head touched the concrete, I was out. I was told officers picked me up, dragged me in the car. I remember opening my eyes at that time, them struggling to get me into the backseat of their police car. And the next time I woke up, I was gotten out of surgery. Um, I think surgery was over 12 hours. Since November, I mean, you were in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Were you angry? What were you feeling in your mind laying in that hospital bed with tubes and, and stitches and open wounds and all that stuff? So in the beginning, when I, when I woke up, I sat right up when 
they took the tube out of my mouth when I looked around. I didn't know where I was at. And I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm in a psych ward. And I remember telling myself that. And I seen my sisters and my dad, and I was like, what's going on? And um, they said, you were shot. And I passed out. Maybe like two days later, I was in an ICU. And I just remember being scared uh, and just dreaming that I, that I got shot. Dreaming somebody was trying to rob me or dreaming that I was fighting. And in the process of fighting, I, I, was, I would get shot. So I would jump up every night for about oh, a few weeks. I would jump up and like, oh my gosh, somebody shot me in my dream. And I would touch myself and feel that I you know, was in a hospital and I was shot. But anger, I think... Not anger, more scared. I, I, I was really, really, really scared for a long time. And then I think I became like super upset and didn't understand like, why would you want to shoot me? I'm a very given person. I like to help people. Um, I worked for nonprofit in the past and working with homeless youth. So being shot for something I had, I just couldn't put that puzzle together. I know that night them two men, if they really need it, they probably would have been in my house and I would have like, let me help you. It's just who I am. So um, at one point I remember being so angry because I was in so much pain and I, I would look down. I had so many different marks and so many different tubes. In the beginning I had um, five tubes coming out my abdominal area. I had a colostomy bag and I had a, a massive hole from my chest cavity all the way down to under my belly. And I think at that time when I got mad, I just had to find a different outlet, you know. And, and I kept thinking about, man, God answered my prayer. Like, God really answered my prayer. I asked not to die and to, to save me, and he did. I think at that time I was telling myself, like, you can't, can't be angry. You can't go for retaliation. You, I just couldn't, you know, just being a spiritual person and being like, my maker really saved my life, you know, and who am I to go back out there and get shot again or shoot somebody? You know, I could have been a statistic. I could have been, could have added to the numbers of, of, of gun violence, of shootings, of homicides. But mm. I picked a whole different other path and I was like, I need to write a letter. It took me a few months, but yeah. Yeah. So you were in the hospital, Temple University Hospital, mm -hmm. and you pen and paper somehow. Mm hmm uh, and you wrote to the men who shot you. Yes. What did you What did you write? So, um, in the beginning, it my letter actually started. It, it when I read it, it sounded like really angry, and um, I, I kept coming on the paper and starting over, and I got to the point where I was like, I want them to know that I'm not looking for them. My friends are not going to be looking for them. I'm more hurt than angry. I'm in pain. I wanted to let them know that I was hurt to even see my mom cry and be in pain. I wanted to let them know that I forgave them and that I hope they, could, they can forgive themselves and move on with their life and um, to the day they meet their maker, they'll be okay. You know, God can bless them, you know. I didn't need to walk around with so much anger, so much hate. Yeah. This is the second opportunity in life. If I didn't do the first go-round, I was going to do it this go-round. But you didn't just write them a letter. Then you took that message of forgiveness yeah. on the street. Tell us, tell us what you've done. So I wrote this letter. Temple made 500 copies for me. And I went around my community uh, with some um, other activists and friends. And we passed out this letter. And it wasn't just... It wasn't just a try to place this in my shooter's hands but for people to read it and 
not just young people, not just people who sit in the street, but the older community and anybody to read it. I really wanted the message for younger people was if you have any kind of thought of doing something, robbing somebody or being so angry trying to shoot somebody, I wanted them to know that you would affect somebody's life. You would change somebody's whole entire life and you would change your life. And it's not worth it. It, it, it isn't. Um, on my letter, you see a, a, a picture of right when I got out of surgery, you mm-hmm. know, because I wanted them to see, you know, there was the tubes. I wanted them to, to really question their actions before they did it. Just because you spend your last $250 on a gun, you know, a gun can change somebody's whole entire life. Because, and I want to, because I want people to really understand, last year we had 1,200 shootings. Mm. 1,200. And so, you know, I just want to explain what guns can do to a human body. So you had how many surgeries? Four different surgeries. Four different surgeries. Mm-hmm. You lost how much weight? About 55 pounds. Um, my last surgery was April 15th. And that surgery, I can say, out of all the surgeries, it really took a lot from me. I was in a lot of pain. They had to reconstruct my whole abdominal area. So when I was shot, it went through my lung. It hit my intestines twice. Um, one bullet it hit my intestines twice. My kidney, my bladder, half of my pancreas was gone. So this last surgery was to... Um, reverse my colostomy, and repair my intestines that was damaged. Mm -hmm. So it took a lot, and it was actually putting my muscles back together so they can heal back together. And so despite all of this, because I just wanted you to describe that, because I don't Mm -hmm. think that people really understand, because we rarely talk about the people who survived gun violence. We always talk about all the homicide deaths, and there Mm -hmm. were over 300 last year. But we rarely talk about the 1,200 who were injured. Yeah. And and that... um, and so, despite all of this trauma to your physical body, to your mind, mm-hmm. PTSD, bad mm-hmm. dreams, all of this, you still choose to forgive. Yes. Um, and, and what I say is forgiveness isn't easy. It's not something that I just woke up and said, you know, I'm going to forgive. I had to work on that. I had to pray. I had to really open up my heart because it was hard. It's not easy. A lot of people say, well, how did you forgive? Somebody shot you and left you for dead. And yes, they did. And it and I had to learn it really, really quick. You know, I tell everybody, you, you learn it as you go, you know. Um, and it's something you practice on. It's like anything you want to learn and want to conquer. And it's something that I had to work on. And it takes a lot of therapy as well. I, I know one thing when it comes to, you know, um, you know, I guess it, uh, black and brown people, when it comes to like mental health, it's a it's a stigma, it's a setback, and it's needed. You you need to be able to talk to somebody. You need to be able to get help. Somebody that you trust, you know. Yeah. And it and it's not easy. You know, I I had dreams for months. Every day, I would lay here and I would wake up, you know, making the same noise that I made when I got shot. It was like that. Oh. And I would wake up, you know, just making that noise, like feeling, you know, every day in my dreams, I got shot. Yeah. You know, there was times that I would dream that I'm in my, my own house, this house here where I got shot at, and I'm fighting for my life. And I can see the person, and I can feel it, and I would wake up. And yeah. there was times that my mind was closing, like I was losing. I felt like I was losing it, and I would have breakdowns. So it's not easy, you know, it, and, you know, I hope that 
when people hear my message or read my my letter that they don't think, oh man, this is easy. He just did that. No, mm-hmm. it takes a lot. Is it more? Is it for you too? It's for me. It's for everybody. Yeah, it's healing. It's healing when I, you know, when I talk to people and they tell me uh, I inspire them and they're so happy and or or I can't even talk to them like I can never do that. And I'm like, you know, do you know what it's like to sit on the side of a street? And not one person come out in your neighborhood. Like so, it's it's in your heart that you just know I'm not going to survive this because nobody around, you know. And nobody and came out. Nobody came out, and I laid there and, and I passed out. And you know, I, I thought about my family. I thought about my mother in Florida, and you know how I wasn't able to, you know, tell people bye and that I love them. One of the things we definitely talk about is that it's. The, the gunshots are Trump traumatic, mm-hmm. but not just to you, but to the neighborhood, to yes. your mother, yeah, to your friends, to your roommate. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like everybody around you are also traumatized by your being victimized in this way. It, it, and it is, you know, my mom calls me all the time and you're not out there late. You're not coming in late, you know, and it shouldn't be like that. You know, I should be able to live my life and. You know, and my family not worry, you know, what time I'm going to come into my house, you know. And it's been a struggle. I've been trying to leave this house and trying to move. But um, things is hard, you know. I've When I say they changed my life, you know, I had a really, really good job. And they're waiting on me. And I just got a text from them this past weekend. Like, we miss you. We want you to come back, you know. And I'm out of work for a year and a half and trying to heal and because you can't only, work because you keep going yeah. back and forth to surgery. You're you're not in. It's not just winded. a physical. Yeah, yeah, it's not a physical thing. It's a, it's also a mental thing. It's 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 not more. It's not you know one more than the other. It, it's you know. So I have to get myself together and um, yeah, you know, and, and try to move forward. And and so when you think about the future of this movement of forgiveness, as you are still you know, healing emotionally, physically mm-hmm. in this. What do you hope in, that happens here? Well, I mean, people ask me that and I always say, I want to inspire, I want to inspire a million people and save two million lives. If I can inspire a million people, they can inspire one of their friends and just spread this message of forgiveness. Yeah. And you have know? they been caught at all? No. So they they're haven't. just still out here. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if you were to, if they were to hear this or, you know, they may have seen the stories, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Are you hoping that they changed their lives, turn themselves in? I don't know. I feel like I did what I was supposed to do. Mm. And it's up to them. They made a really, really bad decision. And they affected a lot of people. And my story's not going to be buried it's they're going to hear it and if they turn themselves in yeah it's a plus if they don't i hope they change their lives and it's maybe sound kind of crazy and if you hear this and you need help i got you that heart of yours is so big and so pure (laughs) so Luis Barrios thank you so much for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news thank you Next up, a Bucks County woman who brings bundles of joy to seniors. Everywhere I go, no one ever says no. How her happy project is catching on.
This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to check out the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, the Apple Podcast app. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community, and one woman is enriching the lives of senior citizens through flowers and smiles. She's known as the Flower Lady, but she's also written 14 books. When does she sleep, y'all? Here to tell us more about the Happy Flowers Project is Patricia Gallagher. Patricia, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you, Cherry. So what is the Happy Flowers Project? It's so many things, but I have to start out by saying it's a great way to start my day. I, I feel happy every day. And even the days that I don't feel well, I just say, who needs cheer? And I pick up day-old flowers from different grocery stores. I call them in the morning and ask if they have anything. And then I just get on the road and I sort of say a prayer and say, God, who needs these flowers today? I might end up at the Alney Transportation Center, a Wawa parking lot, or a senior living community. Wow. And so you you literally hand out these flowers to people who need cheering up. And they're bouquets. They're not individual flowers. So just picture a beautiful spread of flowers you would see for $9.99 in a grocery store. And as of today, I've passed out 42,000 bouquets that would have been tossed by a grocery store. Amazing. And what has been the reaction as you hand off those flowers? It's mainly surprise. It's happiness. I hear so many things like, oh, can I have an extra one? I'm going to visit my mother in a nursing home. Oh, it's my anniversary. Oh, can I take one to someone that's sick? So I don't always give people one. I always say, is there somebody else that you're going to see today? And then I give them a few. And you do this all over the region. Yeah, I started out, I lived in Chalfont at the time, so I would go around the Lansdale area. And then when my mother, who was 87 at the time, and our friend Bob was 91, and on those days we would take them around the Philadelphia area. Yeah, and so you started this project several, about five years ago now. Mm -hmm. And what was put in your heart to say, this is what I want to do? I think it was just divine providence. I wasn't looking for anything, but I was living with my mother, And we went to a fundraiser that my daughter had. And after the fundraiser, they gave everybody bouquets. And I said, Kristen, where did you get these? And she told me the name of the store. And the next day, I went down and asked the store if my mother and I could do this in the morning. And they said you had to be a nonprofit. And we weren't. And I went back to my church and asked the minister. And she said, why don't you give a talk on Sunday about what you want to do? And they decided right away that I could be an outreach of the church. But it was a loosely defined outreach because Mm -hmm. Bob was the co-minister and he was 91. So he wanted to come along with us as one of our flowering pals. So it was just an accidental thing that led to a lot of happiness for Bob and my mother for four years before they passed away. Wow. And you have continued that. I've continued it with my 94-year-old neighbor who every morning she'll see my car starting up and she'll call my cell phone and say, are you going anywhere today? Are you going to do the flowers? And then sometimes I pick up my four-year-old granddaughter from daycare. And, that, and then that's your crew. That's our crew. And I don't, I have to say, Jerry, I don't want any more crew <laughs> because the few times that I've brought somebody with me, they'll go, oh, you're not going on the expressway, are you? Oh, you're not just going to get out of your car and just pass out flowers, are you? And that's exactly what I do in West Philadelphia, North Philadelphia, everywhere I go, No one ever says, no, I don't want flowers. A lot of people say, I don't have money or how much are they? And I say they're free. People love getting the flowers and we love giving them. So you're just a burst of joy wherever you go. 
I feel that I get a burst of joy from everybody else. You know, there's a few people in my family that say, why are you doing this? All your gas and all your time. I can't think of a better way to use my time and my gas than doing this. Beautiful. And in addition to just bringing cheer through the Happy Flower Project, uh, you also write books. I do. Always about the things that I'm going through. Um, I was raising kids, so I wrote a book, Raising Happy Kids on a Budget. I had owned a daycare center a million years ago before daycare was really in, so I wrote a book about how to open a daycare center. And then as different events happened in our family's life, I wrote about those things as well. In one of your books, you talk about collecting stuffed animals <laughs> and bringing and giving those to people. That started um, when one Christmas, my mother said, why don't we go read Twas the Night Before Christmas to a nursing home? So we called the nursing home and brought a book. And then we brought our own stuffed animals and gave them to people as a prop as we were reading the story. But then we went to take back our own stuffed animals. They didn't want to give them up. (laughs) So that night on, and how can you take them away? So that night on Facebook, I posted about what had happened. And a friend had 200 stuffed animals left over from an event. And she gave us those. And we continue reading that story all through the season. And then I started posting on Craigslist, and we collected 11,000 stuffed animals. O-M-G. O-M-G. Not all at once. So I wrote a book telling people how to do that, and then another one, How to Start a Happy Flower Day Project. Because I think at this point, Cherry, I think I've done the flowering myself. I love it. But I think if I collected 42,000 in five or six years, if even one person from every state did that, that would be Millions of flowers not going to waste that could bring cheer to other people. Yeah. And so how does it make you feel when you see that a person's face, especially someone in a nursing home who may not get the visits, you know, but someone like you bursts in with a handful of of flowers and cheer. How does it make you feel when when they react in such a positive way? It makes me feel really good. But it also We burst in, I like that word, singing happy flower day to you to the tune of happy birthday. So Bob had his harmonica. He was a Yale graduate and a captain in World War II. So when we came in, my mother would be singing happy flower day to you. Bob would be playing the harmonica. And it was a burst of blooms. It was a burst of smiles. And everybody feels good. The staff gets the flowers. The people that are visiting get flowers. And everybody gets to witness the joy of free flowers for all. So if people would like to support you and your effort to bring happiness, I mean, people forget how important just a burst of happiness and how it could change a day and even a life for someone who may be at a down point. My daughter, I'm not much with technology, but she did a website for me called happyflowerday.org. So it's www.happyflowerday.org. And it tells people about the project and it shows lots of pictures. And can people support you, donate? Uh, Uh, That would be wonderful. (laughs) That would be wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Well, Patricia, I could tell you just by looking at she had people you can't this is radio, so you can't (laughs) see Patricia, but she's like this she has like a aura about her that is so bright. And so I I wanna say congratulations and thank you for starting the Happy Flower Project and you know, helping to recycle some of these flowers that were going to the trash and now they bring cheer uh, to people who need a little cheering up. I like to say I'm re-gifting them. I like what you said, recycling them, re-gifting them, reusing them, or repurposing them. It would be a shame to waste them. Yes. So thank you so much to Patricia Gallagher, founder of the Happy Flowers Project. Thank you so much for coming in and being on Flashpoint. Thank you, Cherry. 
That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Nelson Mandela once said, to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.